of The Real Real. I'm Julie Gilhart, President of Tomorrow Projects and Chief Development Officer of Tomorrow. And I'm Sarah Kozlowski, VP of Program Strategies of Education and Sustainability at the CFDA. And we're excited to be co-hosting the CFDA and The Real Real Collaborative Podcast, Circle of Influence. This podcast takes a deep dive into fashion sustainability, past, present, and future. In a world still reeling from the impact of COVID and social unrest, the conversation is more urgent than ever. As fashion considers how to respond to this moment, opportunity to course correct and look to more sustainable efforts for a better future feels all the more necessary. So we ask, what will fashion sustainability look like as we get through to the other side of this moment? Gathering some of the most celebrated voices within design, editorial, education, climate materials, and NGO work, we dig deep into their perspectives on the matter and try to figure that out. In the Congo with, you know, uh, Belgium, you know, when they, what they did with the people of the Congo, you know, King Leopold II, and just the way, um, I guess in this case, colonialists like went into countries you know the, the way you divide a society you know like the way societies are divided but like king leopold himself didn't do it like he didn't go to the congo he, he they did it to each other you know like people were cutting off kids hands if they were not getting the rubber the quota you know like but it was people doing it inside their own communities you know creating mm-hmm. um all of this divisiveness inside the community that's being perpetuated by somebody coming from outside sometimes in history, right? Like in that particular case. And, and so I think it, it's kind of a similar thing here, right? With clothes, you know, you, you we have, and we all suffer from that. It's not an easy answer, right? But like, yeah. but we've all have to start to make the choices. The more we're learning, I had to make my choices, the more I'm learning, you know, like, where do you see yourself sitting inside this system that we're talking about, right? Like, what are your values? Like, what matters more to you? You know, and and um, and then you start making your choices. So your t-shirt example, we know the statistics. One t-shirt, 2,700 liters of water. That's two years of drinking water. Is it more important for me to have that t-shirt or is it more important for my children's or my children's children to have access to clean drinking water? What are our values? You know, and it's not an easy answer because you're right. If you want the t-shirt, you, you deserve, if you deserve it or you earned it, I might have the t-shirt. Why can't you have the t-shirt? <laughs> you know, like it's not for me to say which t-shirt you shouldn't, shouldn't have. But I guess the beauty to what I'm um, also, again, what Tracy was saying is it's also not as complicated as it seems. Maybe you do buy the t-shirt, but then you don't do something else, right? Like there's so many ways you can contribute and be a part of the change, right? And like, and, and, and consuming differently, you yeah. know, maybe you don't wash your clothes with hot water, you know, that contributes a lot to CO2. Maybe you make other decisions. And I think once we start recognizing how everything works together, like I, when I learned that, you know, minerals from the Congo, for example, support this device that I'm holding in my hand, you know, and like how many, so how many devices do I need? So I hold on to devices longer. I don't just throw them away uh-huh. because I understand that I cannot come and start yelling about stopping violence against women and rape. And then I know that it's being used as a weapon of war, for example, in the DRC, and that the people can take minerals and use that. I'm not saying that that company did it, but somebody did it, you know, like, so they can buy them cheaply. There's a, there's a direct correlation there somewhere. And so like, at what point do we look in the mirror and say, I'm also responsible? And I had that epiphany when I turned around. That's why I left my work and I mm-hmm. started a new work because I looked in the mirror and I you keep wanting to make somebody else responsible. And at some point, that mirror has to turn on you and say, but what did you do? 
Like, yeah. where's your accountability? Are you responsible? What, what did you do? And then you're like, actually, I either did nothing, you know, like, and sometimes that's good. And sometimes it's not, or I negatively impacted and I contributed. And, you know, there is sometimes a, a very direct relationship. And so that's, that's like my perspective. And like, just thinking about what you're saying about clothing, you know, even just learning statistics about mass incarceration that, that like blew my mind when I first started learning about that, you know, and people are, are allowed to, to work at cheap, cheap labor, right. almost nothing, you know, and that because of the 13th amendment, all the stuff that we already know, I'm not going to get into all that. But the point is, is that like, so do I, do I want a $3 t-shirt, which is like almost impossible to make, or do I want people out of jail? You know, like you got to really think about that. I'm not saying a $3 t-shirt is somebody was made by somebody in jail, but I, but I do know that I don't want people in jail. If they don't, you know, like, unless they, you know what I mean? Like, so what matters more to me? And so I, I think that we have to really think about our values and then we have to vote with them. And in my life, examples I've done is like, you know, I might have a vintage bike and I bought it from a really great black owned business in Brooklyn. And I was super happy. And the guy who, who fixed it for me and it feels really good that I didn't, you know, contribute waste. And I, it, you know, helped his business and I got what I needed. He got what he, it was a win-win for everybody. And I know where my food is coming from. You know, I use those farm mm -hmm. boxes and they got me through the pandemic when food was really difficult to get. And mm -hmm. it makes me feel good. And so I think we each make these choices, but ideally you make those that benefit the greater community. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and, I mean, Rachel, you were talking about how you're trying to forge more community now because given everything that's going on in the news. And I think to your point, Abrima, you, you mentioned something that you had an epiphany. Like Rachel, when did you have your epiphany? Because you were definitely working in luxury fashion. You guys all were working in luxury fashion, but like, what was your epiphany where you were like, you know what, I'm going to, I need to streamline and I need to look at, like you're saying, Abrima, like my decisions, my choices and streamline. I actually just want to, piggyback off of what Abrima said just sure. about secondhand, because I think it's a really um, actually quite easy solve for if someone is being marketed to constantly on social media, et cetera, et cetera, their friend group, and they're feeling insecure about, you know, what they, how they want to present themselves through their dress. I think that, you know, it's about keeping clothes in their life cycle longer. So instead of buying the fast fashion t-shirt for $3, buy the Goodwill t-shirt for $3. So it's just more about kind of using our innate personal style or getting inspiration through all of the imagery that we see constantly and feeling more confidence in ourselves to choose a one-of-a-kind item that we can find secondhand that's more often than not going to be a comparable price to, to fast fashion. Um, and I think that that's one of the best ways to be able to get something like air quotes new um, into your wardrobe that isn't actually extractive in any way, isn't, you know, child labor, isn't manufactured, you know, in factories, et cetera. And some brands are starting to do like take back programs, which I think is really amazing as well. So that um, in addition to the price point, the new price point, if people cannot, if that's not affordable for, uh, for all, then people can buy the secondhand version. And I think that's a wonderful solve that makes it more accessible. It's true. Like Patagonia mm. and I mean, the real, real, <laughs> like, real, real. Yeah. The real, real actually is amazing. And I'm going to say why I was thinking about that earlier and it's not because of this show, <laughs> but it's exactly the solve to this issue because, you know, I've worked with the real, real a couple of times now and the the way the I feel like the real world leads with their heart like it's a business 
but the way they make this, they seem to make decisions and lead also with heart, you know, like knowing when it's business and when it's heart, I guess it's not an easy formula, but I, I, I think that you guys like so beautifully, you know, like during the pandemic, we had some stores that were just like, people didn't know what to do. Right. Like some people got it right. Some people didn't get it right. But like, you know, you're still in a world with people and you don't know what they're going through. You don't know their pain. You don't know if they've lost someone, you don't know anything, right? Like you don't know what they're getting, going through to even get you these items produced in the most impossible situations that are still happening right now, still very challenging. And, you know, I had one store that was like, we had a delay on a delivery. Obviously we had a delay for so many reasons out of our control. And they were like, you have to give us our money back. It's like, so you want me, and I did anyways. So you want me to go to the people that you, you wrote in your press article that you were supporting who I've already paid to make the clothes because they've already started to, they didn't go as fast as you wanted, but they're, they're actually making the clothes. The money has been spent. There's no margin to pay you back. You want me to ask them to pay you back in a pandemic? Are you, are you sure that's what you're asking me to do? And they're not hearing you. And we're talking about, it was probably something like $700. I mean, it's the, you know, when they give the 10% to like they would have given thousands more than that. It's a very small number, but the action of asking me to do that is deep. I'm like, are you sure this is your values? And they're not hearing you. The real, real, full, complete opposite, like total opposite kind of thing. You know, at the height of the pandemic, when we were not sure what was going to happen and we switched to PPE, immediately Mm -hmm. accepted to take our order and sell out of our masks, which allowed us to keep people employed and to float, to help put us in the position that when it started to pick up, we could thrive and we could grow. And that would not have happened. Like there was business, but there was business with heart because you were like, you were able to be like, how can we be of service? And on top of that, support people who were needing PPE through fashion for humanity and all like to me, like, like that made me that that moment as a customer and as a producer, a full loyalist. And, And it's only gotten better since then, but like really not everybody works like that. And I think it's brands like that, that are going to, that are really going to survive and, and, and take off when right. it's over. Because obviously that's what the pandemic showed our industry that it, you know, there, the models are not sustainable, <laughs> you know, and you have, you have to shift. Um, I guess also the great thing about like when you did your sale is like the, there's this accessible, sustainable price point too. Right. And like, that's the thing. It's like, oh, I feel like I, I mean, I, I want to make an effort towards streamlining my closet or, 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 and making more thoughtful, conscious decisions, but maybe I like, I literally physically can't, you know, and, and, um, and systems like that can help you actually buy into this. Um, and that's why it's so way. important for um, customers to also be educated on like mm-hmm. what it takes to make something. Because I know like Hope for Flowers, I think are like, we try to make things that you can buy. I try to make things you can buy. So there's a lot of handwork inside and it should be way more expensive, but it, it means that we don't make a lot of money because we're trying to make, we're trying to pass it back to you. So, you know, it, it has to be kind of treated as such, right? Like it has to be valued as such and you have to understand what goes into making it so that you value it and you keep it, right? Like you buy things. And if you don't want to buy it, it's okay, don't buy it. Like, but if you buy it, buy it with purpose and intention. Because by doing that, we can keep the prices like lower for you. And we can do this like win-win. And the more we sell, the more we can lower the prices. So that we go back to what you were saying earlier is like, then we can make 
sustainable goods less and less and less expensive, but you have to also choose them. You know, like it's a, it's right. kind of, it's a circle. We all have to kind of do this together. No, absolutely. I mean, both, like all of you guys have done this shift and, I, and that, you know, I think you've also proven maybe people think it's too hard or too difficult to be sustainable. And, and like, how could they, how could, you know, I, I make a profit. How can I do business and have heart, you know, at the same time, like, but you guys have all switched gears and like, and shifted your business strategy. Was that hard? Was that fearful for you? Or did you find it to be a lot easier and like, and a lot more rewarding, obviously a lot more rewarding, but can you talk a little bit about just like that shift and what it was like to come, to come into your purpose? You know, for me, I, I was just super fortunate. You know, I think that (laughs) the stars aligned for me (laughs) where, you know, one business was cycling down and my, my personal mission was getting charged up and I've worked in this industry for, you know, 35 years And luckily I can, you know, I'm coming at it from a been there, done that sort of place where, Mm -hmm. you know, we've sold millions of units of clothing, been there, done that, you know, had a global business, been there, done that runway shows, been there, done that. It's not like something where I haven't had the opportunity to experience um, a different type of business. And the more I learned about you know, our industry and its footprint, the more I knew that I couldn't just turn a blind, turn a blind eye. And I, I knew that I personally needed to, to pivot, to um, have a, a mission, you know, I mean, I think our, my, my former mission was more like to create beautiful things and make people happy with something cute. And but it's it's not enough anymore. And I, I knew, I just said to myself, you know, if I'm going to continue, if I want to, because I, I thought about doing something completely different as well. Mm. But I love, I love this business. I love what I do. I love creating beautiful things. But I knew that I had to do it completely differently. And I had the opportunity to, to step away and, you know, my business partners and I were kind of going through a divorce because they wanted something different. You know, they were definitely um, entranced by the idea of creating, you know, volume, uh, inexpensive yeah. volume products. And it was like, I, you know, the horrors of it. I was like, no, uh, absolutely not. And definitely not, you know, under my name. So it was, it was remarkably easy for me, but I do think that, you know, it can feel easier to start fresh with a sustainable mission and then to turn a company, a going concern um, into a more responsible company. But I think that people think they have to do it all at once. And that's not necessary. You know, it's baby steps. I mean, you master one 
thing and you move on to the next. You make you start making adjustments in your supply chain and how you approach design and the materials that you use, but you don't have to do it all at once. And I think that that is what is off-putting to a lot of people, the idea of having to change their whole supply chain because okay. our industry moves so quickly and you know, you don't have time to look to the left or the right. We don't have time to wear test new designs or anything like that. I mean, I've, and I, and that's at every level I've bought, you know, real luxury items and thought to myself, the construction on my $300 retail skirt is 12 times better than this $1,500 skirt, Mm. you know, and I think we put more effort into it, but every company has been so stressed and so pushed to produce, 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 develop, develop, develop. And, you know, I think the pandemic really you know, it was an interesting pause for people to reflect on that and the need for that. The fact that there isn't a, a true need for it and that the stores can't even keep up with the flow that they're asking for. Yeah. Um, but yeah, for me, it was remarkably easy and oh so satisfying. But, you know, starting any new business is not simple, you know, I consult, I have, I've got my, my side gigs and (laughs) I'm taking it slow and, and really, um, running a lean business and that's necessary in general and super necessary in these times. Um, but I just feel like the universe is calling You know, it is really calling us to make these fundamental changes and it's trying to get our attention. Why are we quarantined at home and who's not Mm -hmm. listening to that? Mm -hmm. You know, there's I mean, the universe is calling. Will you answer what changes do you need to make in your life? Universe is asking us to cook our own food. Is that so hard? You know, the universe is asking us to make do with a little bit less. Yeah. Is that so bad? Yeah. No, you know, it's, and, 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 and to wait for things, you don't have to have everything on your doorstep tomorrow morning. Right. Right, Was that so terrible? (laughs) You know, so, you know, we, especially Americans, we're, we're spoiled for choice. We're, we're, a lot of us have a lot of comfort and security and you just, you get wrapped up in it and you think that, that's the only way to live and that's the most admirable way to live. And I think that, you know, this year has, has really opened up my mind and, you know, it started before this year, obviously, but I've, I've found it empowering to um, not run on somebody else's playbook. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Rachel, do you, have anything to add? I mean, I feel like you had a, a different perspective coming as a stylist. In 2016, I was the fashion director at Allure magazine after, you know, about a decade of working in various magazines, mostly at Condé. Um, and I was called emotionally, spiritually to travel to North Dakota um, to stand in solidarity with the water protectors at Standing Rock against the Dakota Access Pipeline. And, you know, I'm embarrassed to say that my privilege protected me from experiencing environmental racism, like in my space, seeing it with my eyes. Um, And it took that experience for me to really recognize that how real environmental racism is and how, you know, toxic sites are 
built in, they target BIPOC communities to build those sites. Um, and, and, you know, I don't need to go into all of the stats, but environmental racism is real. And that really woke me up to the connection that like, we can't care about the environment without caring about environmental racism. And we can't talk about sustainability without talking about social justice. And in a system that is racist, when we say sustainability, going back to what Abrima and Tracy said, like, what are we trying to sustain? So sustainability, the definition, I guess, means, you know, meeting our needs while main, you know, leaving enough to, for the future generations to meet their needs, but who is our, like, so within a racist system, our does not include everyone. Right. And so I think going back to, you know, <laughs> indigenous folks, um, around the world for millennia have been practicing sustainable ways of living as Abrima mm -hmm. and Tracy mentioned. And, you know, through colonialism and slavery, those ways of life and practices were suppressed and forbade, right? So like that type of cultural wisdom that allowed humans to live harmoniously and sustainably with nature was eradicated because it wasn't allowed, it was forbidden. But now that the capitalism machine is eating through all of the earth's resources and people are concerned about clean water and clean air and their properties living close to the fire line. People are desperate to air quotes, discover sustainable ways to live when of course <laughs> they don't need to discover anything. These are the inherent practices of indigenous cultures for millennia. So, you know, that's appropriation. So now what's happening is ideas that have been um, practiced for many, many years are being taken from cultures and appropriated and being called sustainable in kind of a white fashion greenwashing mentality. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really trendy right now to talk about sustainability just from an environmental standpoint, but to not acknowledge the human standpoint, the economic standpoint. And as you guys mentioned, you know, who makes our clothes is a part of sustainability, making sure that those people can live a sustainable lifestyle earn a living wage is a part of sustainability because they are part of our, they are a part of making our lives <laughs> able to live. Right. Like, so that was all like a huge crash course education for me. Um, and it was actually really easy when I came back from that experience, I learned so much. Um, and I just felt like I needed to find a way to, do it differently. And I wasn't going to be able to do that within a system of having to like answer to bosses because I tried to stick with it for a little while and, and really advocate within, you know, my position for the things that, um, I thought were important to include in the magazine, but I realized I was so limited and I had to go through so much, you know, red tape and politics that it was really difficult to kind of push any progressive ideas through. Um, so I decided to go out on my own as a freelance stylist and it, it's been really easy to incorporate, values into my projects because I am my own boss, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, granted, I have had to, you know, I had to save money to be able to leave my position, leave my full-time position. And obviously it's a privilege to, to leave my job. Um, so there is a financial risk in kind of pursuing uh, the combination of, or combining one's, you know, kind of morals and ethics with one's career path. Um, but if you can work out the finances, you know, obviously going out on your own and obviously Abrima and Tracy, you can speak to this too, ha having your own company, you can, you can really 
you can implement your values in a much more tangible way than you can when you're, you know, answering to a corporate kind of structure. Um, so I find it, you know, when the call is so strong and when you see so much suffering um, in the world around us, it's pretty hard to like hoist horse blinder and shut your brain off to everything that you're seeing. You know, once you see that, you, you can't unsee it. And there is a way for us to make um, sustainable practices aspirational. You know, we need to give the credit back to the people whose ideas those were in the first place and, and celebrate those ideas. The original reasons why, you know, sustainable practices came into being. And I think it's about celebration and joy and finding beauty in those practices. And also, you know, again, as you guys mentioned, slowing down, buying less, like cherishing the things that we buy, being really, really excited about the one dress that you buy in the season and wearing it over and over again. Um, and, and, and building kind of an innate confidence in oneself to go against the grain, you know? And, and again, you know, I recognize that not everyone has that privilege, but within your space, if you can, you know, dress in a certain way where it's about using your personal style, um, as opposed to right. being di dictated to by what social media is telling you, that gives you a lot of free reign to kind of choose where you're buying things from. Everything you just said. <laughs> yes. Like snaps. <laughs> I'm, I'm like totally, totally inspired by that. I'm inspired by all of you. I know. I mean, I, Brima, you're, you also kind of went through a similar shift. Like you were at Bottega, you, you know, just like, um, uh, uh, Rachel was at Conde and it's like these, these huge fashion giants and you're looking around and you're like, I can't, I can't silence the call, you know, like environmental racism is real. This is happening. I have to do something about it. You know, um, can you take us just through a little bit of your journey? Rachel, you like dropped the mic with all yeah. of that. It was like incredible. Yeah. I was like, okay, I'm snapping too. Russia. Um, yeah. So for me, my journey was, I think it actually, there's, there's like two things. Like it, um, it started before, it takes me a lot, like a little while before I actually do something. I'm very much in my, I'm very Virgo. I'm like, I spend a lot of time in my head thinking about and planning. Um, but my, so my, my grandmother uh, passed away in 2006 and she was the matriarch of our family. So like, in, I'm in Zima, my father's side, and it was like a big, you know, funeral. And, um, I grew up more American uh, in New York and didn't go back and forth as much as I would have liked to uh, Ghana and Ivory Coast. And uh, when she passed, I did not have the words to tell my job that I needed to go to Africa. I didn't know how to say it. I couldn't say, I, I was too young. I, I just, like, it wasn't the topic people talked about. I couldn't, they'd be like, where are you going? Like, I just couldn't, I didn't feel like I could say it, you know? And I, and I didn't have the money to go. And I just couldn't get my head around doing this because I was just trying to like, you know, work hard and do well. And that's the only thing I cared about, right? Like winning at work, right? And, and growing and being promoted. Um, and uh, then the year later, uh, I think it was 2006, my father had a stroke. Um, he's alive, but um, I was uh, on a photo shoot for Bottega. I was in Florida and the phone rang the first time. I didn't pick it up. Um, it was an unknown number and then and rang again. And I think I went to visit my best friend who was down there and she was like, answer the phone. And, you know, strangers telling me your father is in Paris and he's had a stroke. And it was like, and, and, you know, but 
what happened is like I instantaneously understood how quickly life changes. Like that was the first time that it really became clear that your life is one thing one day and it's a whole other thing the next day. And, and, you know, and the importance of how you choose to live your life, you know, and um, I'm not going to get too deep into that story, but what I, what I did teach me was that, you know, uh, one, he was super, Genian. Like he was, he started, you know, going into the village asking for things. Where's Ajuba? Where's this person? You know, like, and we had to find his passport. And I, I grew up American. I thought he was very American. And I, you know, I didn't realize he was, you know, he saw the Guinean passport with a, with a green card. I was like, what is this? I was like, what are you doing? And he said, I'm from Ghana. And, and like the way he said it with such certainty and such clarity, you know, it, it just became clear to me that, you know, one, my connection was through my father. I didn't have my own space. Just like with my mother, I don't have enough of my own identity with Mississippi. It's through my mother, you know, and I, and I wanted to develop my own relationships. And so the following year I went to the Ivory Coast and I started seeing a lot of the tailoring and such. And so then after that, I started this kind of like you both said the universe was calling, right? Like it was little, little, little by little, you know, and I started doing a lot of philanthropy work and different things. And then I started, you know, doing um, charity and I had like a month off in August because Italy likes to shut down in August, which is great. You know, <laughs> I would go to, um, I would go volunteer and I was trying to get other companies to, um, to put more design into their kind of like helping women thing, right? Like, because charity was still had this kind of, you know, it didn't, it wasn't very fashion. It was kind of like either, you know, and I was like, people were buying kind of tchotchkes on holiday and not keeping them because it wasn't, it wasn't what they really wanted. They were just buying it to help somebody. And that's not enough. It needs to be about more than this. And then I learned about Muhammad Yunus and he won the Nobel Peace Prize and I learned about social enterprise and I learned about microloans and I wrote a manifesto and the universe called and Rosario um, mm. invited me to the Congo on the most amazing life-changing journey um, for the opening of the City of Joy, which is a leadership center by Evensler's V-Day, who's now known by V, um, and uh, Dr. Mugwebe, who has the Pansy Hospital. And it was a, a leadership center for women who had been the victim of rape and sexual violence. And it was this really ridiculous, crazy, impossible journey to get there. And But I know that the, when she first asked me, do you want to go to the Congo? I was in Milan. It was fashion week. And this time I said, yes, because of the time I didn't, I said yes immediately. And I went straight into my boss's office and I said, I have to go to Bukavu. Okay. <laughs> in the DRC. And she said, okay, go. You know, this is years yeah. later. I found my voice right. and I right, said right, it, right. you know, and I said it yeah. with certainty and there was no, there was no other direction. I was going, you yeah. know, even if I had to quit, I was going. And she said, okay. And I went back to New York and I went through this like hula hoops of trying to figure out paperwork and all these things. And um, anyway, it was a difficult journey, but when we got there, we met women who had been the victim of so much trauma and rape and violence, and they were still resilient and they were building and they were wonderful and beautiful and tenacious. And they would make, um, they would make small things and they would, you know, invest in agriculture, feed their kids, send their kids to school. And it was the first time that I saw really what sustainability could look like and what it means to empower a woman and what she can do with her own community and what it means to work in a, in a world with 
communities that you don't have, like, you know, before then I was having, I have to do this, I have to do this and coming in with these kind of top down ideas. And then it switched to really having to realize you have to listen and let people do it themselves and come in bottom up and learn um, and, and support marginalized communities and create a value chain and work together. And so I came back, I was living in Italy, I wrote a plan. Um, and then I did not enough as we do. And the universe said, nope, you're not done yet. And I got a call from the caring group and they asked me if I wanted to mentor an organization in Uganda. I had been there almost a decade. No one's ever talked to me about Africa <laughs> at Bottega Vendetta. I just want to be clear. Like it's like the first time. Right. And I said, uh, yeah. And so right. like, did you even hear the question? I said, yeah, I'm on my way. <laughs> and so I went to Uganda and I met this organization that makes washable sanitary napkins for girls that skip school when they have their periods called yeah. AfriPads. But what was so powerful is that it was a locally made product using local resources. They could hire the girls. The girls bought the pads themselves, which is very different than charity. Even though it was subsidized, the girls didn't know it was subsidized. The prices were just lower, you know? And so like every time a girl would buy a pad, they would make a choice about what kind of women they wanted to be, what kind of world they wanted to live in, how they wanted to care for their bodies. And it's very different. And now it's like a big company and all, but like watching how that could work, I realized the, empower, the importance of empowering local communities and using your, your platform to help do that. And so- I came back and I essentially quit. Um, that was like, but it was like, it wasn't just that. It was all of it. You know, it was like, it was looking around the room, looking around everything I was doing and, you know, seeing that, um, you know, you could have second, third generation artisans and you could sell something with the Made in Italy label and people were willing to pay a premium and thinking it was amazing and wonderful. Yet there were so many people doing incredible work and we were begging for charity. Right. Girls were getting raped. People are living in terrible circumstances and, and they're making the same handwork. So how is it possible that these two things are valued in two these completely different ways? It doesn't make sense. And instead of having to always beg for charity, why not just pay fairly for that price or reduce the price of the other one and increase everybody's you know, value so people can pay for their own kids to go to school? You know, like I had that opportunity. Why can't other people have that opportunity? And for me, when I was visiting, I would see so many young women, they look just like me. You know, yeah. like these are my sisters. These are my cousins. Some of them are my cousins. You know, like I could have been them like this. Like there's no, I, I'm a second away from being them and they're second away from being me. But now I got this passport, you know, and now I have these, these chances and this education that they don't have. And so I can say whatever I want. I can do what I want. I mean, not exactly, but kind of relatively. And I'm not forced to do what I see some of these girls doing on the street at night to, so right. they can buy school books, you know, giving up their bodies for, for pens and pencils and school books. I don't have to do that. And so I just like, it changed my whole thing. And, and to me, you know, just again, the universe, like that project ended up winning the Nobel Peace Prize last year. I didn't know that was going to happen when I said yes. You know, there's a movie on Netflix about the city of joy. I didn't know that was going to happen when I said yes. I quit. And then I moved to Ghana and I'll, I'll close with this, but um, Eve Ensler then said in, one in three women will be raped and sexually violated. And she asked for a billion people to take a stance and she asked them to dance and to rise in their power. And we had met so many people who had been through so much different trauma, but like they could rise to the power, the power of creativity and their craft. That's what gets them to go back to school. That's what gets them to do all this stuff. And it became so clear how many women work in the informal economy, how many women sustain right. their kids getting education, getting access to clean water, getting all these things through clothes, like through the stuff they're making, you know, and how important it is to, to change that narrative and not make it negative and make it positive and honor the work they're doing 
and, and look at it differently. And every time the consumer was voting, they were voting with their dollar. And so we said fashion could rise and we called it Fashion Rising. And we, we launched, I moved to Ghana. Um, but, you know, to, to the point that Rachel was making, you know, like I, years later, when I reached the point where I realized it's always going to be a small company, that that's a big, like it took me, I, I pushed against this. It's, you know, I struggled, I pushed. And then I realized like, you know, it depends on how you want to live your life. To be a trillion dollar company, I get it. I get that you can be a trillion, you can be a billion, and that can be your objective. Maybe one day I'll quit my own company and that will be my new objective. But to do that, when you know the names of the people that work for you, very difficult. When I know your story, mm-hmm. I know who's selling my things. I know what happens if I don't pay. I know what happens if I don't sell. I know what happens, you know what I mean? Like I know when somebody's sick, I know when someone's pregnant, I know when somebody is hurting, I know when someone is hungry, I know all the things, even their family. I mean, I know too many things. Right. You know, but once you know that, like you were saying, Rachel, you can't unknow that. Once you see it, you see if you see dirty water, you see somebody drinking dirty water, you cannot unsee it. And if all you had to do is a small action, little action, would change the course of somebody's life, why would you not do that? You will do that. And so I think it's, it's this not knowing thing, these blinders that we've been walking in, this is what has to end. Because I actually believe in humanity. I do think people are inherently good. Not everybody, but I do think most people are inherently good. I do. I, I just think that we've created this situation where we've put blinders on intentionally, you know, so we don't have to see. And I, I'm not saying it has to be negative. It doesn't have to be horrible. It doesn't have to be this like, I know it's heavy. We don't have to be heavy all the time. But just knowing, you know, like I feel like people do care. And knowing even just a little bit, you don't have to watch that video to care. You know, you just need to know mm. what happened. You don't have to watch George Floyd with the knee on his neck to care that that happened. I don't have to watch that video, you know, like, but I have to be a bit human to understand that that is not right. right. You know what I mean? And it's, and it's quite... Um, similar. So anyway, I just, you know, I think it's about making those choices and I made mine and I made peace with it. And, you know, I was willing to say, yep, I can't afford that today <laughs> before I could afford all these things. Now I can't, but I don't care because I can call Tracy up and I can, she's my homie and I can call you Marjan. I can hang out Rachel. And, and that those human relationships matter so much more to me now than like my daily, you know, Starbucks runs that I used to do. <laughs> To your point too, Abrima, and when we talk about, you know, that word sustainability, every business shouldn't be a trillion dollar business or a billion dollar business. It's like, it should be a sustainable business. It should be its own natural, organic, correct size. You know, if I can have a business where I can offer quality of life and a good living to everyone that I employ and we can operate with integrity and, you know, we're operating in the black, then I'm, I've, I've, I've reached my goal. I'm, I'm, I'm happy and it's enough. And I think, you know, just recognizing how much is enough, you know, what's enough? Why do we need so much more than we need? That's so powerful, Tracy. Like if, if every business owner had that mentality of like, do you have enough? Is that good enough for you? You know, like just the greed, I think that spirals out into everyone wanting a trillion dollar company is, is so unnecessary. Thank you. (laughs) And some people that's their goal. I mean, I, I, I'm not gonna gainsay that, but I, 
it's interesting, you know, how your priorities change, you know, as we go through the process. And even when we look at, you know, brands and what they stand for and what you make, it's like, okay, do you still love creating that product? You know, is you know, a hundred units of something, you know, you're doing it and you're loving every minute of it and it's what you wanted it to be. It hasn't had to be watered down. It hasn't had to be, um, you know, change to, to suit a, a bigger and bigger and bigger audience. I mean, and I think if you talk to most designers, you know, when you're designing something that has to sell a thousand units or 10,000 units, it's completely different. And a lot of the joy leaves, you know, and that was another issue for me in choosing, you know, to start this brand. It's like, I want to enjoy every moment of it. And I want to enjoy you know, creating this product and I, and I I don't want to compromise this product. I don't want to compromise its design or its integrity or its origins. So if that means there should be less of it in the world, then that's what it means. And that's okay. Yep. You guys, this has been incredible. Um, You've educated me on so many things. I feel like there's just been incredible gems here. Um, I don't know if you guys have any last thoughts, um, I mean, you guys kind of ended it on like sustainable praxis, um, but if there are any last thoughts on the issue of race and and um, and sustainability at that intersection, leave us leave us with a few things to take away. I just want to say thank you because this has been really interesting for me, and I'm really sad that I have to jump off. Um, Marjan, you're an amazing host. <laughs> you're okay. such a good host like I could do this for like six, six hours I could be on the phone with you three like for a really long time call without me, even... call me yeah like this is such a good honest um conversation with like a free flow of ideas and exchange and you know just exploring topics which is kind of my favorite thing to do just you know just thinking about it and centering yourself inside and figuring out you know, where you fit and what you could do and how it all fits together. And I just wanted to say thank you for facilitating it. Thank you to Rachel and to Tracy. I mean, I really feel inspired. I'm not like, on. I feel very inspired and very, you know, um, moved and motivated, you know, from this conversation. I learned a lot too. Um, and uh, I just really am always really grateful to be surrounded by women that are doing this, that we can do this together and we can, you know, Tracy, during the pandemic, I remember we spoke on the phone and she was like, call me, you know, let's, let's talk more. Let's talk all the time. It's and like, and you know, whether we talk or just knowing that like, that's family, like family says that, right? Like whether you talk or not, like, but the fact that I can call you anytime, the fact that we can be here, you know, for each other um, is like what it's all about. And it's what motivates me to keep going. And um, so like, thank you. Thanks to all of you for, for letting thank me be you. here with you. And to echo Abrema's point, you know, family, you know, if we, if we look at this all our lives, you know, we are all family. And I think that we lose sight of, of that and, you know, focusing on differences and we have to look at each other and our circumstances. And if you're in pain, I'm in pain. If you're happy, I'm happy. Wherever you are in the world. And whatever your circumstances are. And I think, you know, coming out of this quarantined moment to be able to live together as family is we know what a gift and a blessing 
it is and how we look forward to the day when we can commune, when we can be physically in community with each other. And I think if we approach our lives and our work and how we are leaving this planet, knowing that if we can take from this moment, you know, of insanity, divisiveness, end of world feeling, disappointment, hurt, pain, and just focus on simple things, simple pleasures, sunshine, rain, flowers, beauty, family, then that's enough. Yeah, I love that. I love simple things. Rachel? I think to just go back to the original question that you posed, which is why are race and sustainability not discussed in the same conversation? I think it's just worth acknowledging that this, the current contemporary trend-driven sustainability movement is not intersectional. So thank you to Kimberly Crenshaw for coining the term for us. So now we have that language to be able to like describe what's happening. Um, but the, the sustainability movement has to be about centering the voices of those most affected by climate change, by pollution, by extraction, by low uh, wages. Um, and I think that when we can make that movement intersectional is when we can start to see true sustainability happening. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Um, Ayanna Johnson said, you know, this movement needs black people. This, yes. this, this movement needs yes. people of color, you know? Um, yes. And I, I can't say that enough. Um, I want to thank you all for joining me today um, for Circle of Influence. Um, you guys have been amazing guests. Check out each and every one of these women's work. Um, they're all changing the game. And um, we'll meet again soon. Thank you for listening. Thank you, guys. Love you. Thank you so thank much. You. Thank you. Circle of Influence podcast is co-hosted by me, Julie Gilhard, and Sarah Kozlowski, and produced by Hanger Studios. If you like what you're hearing, rate and review. It helps other listeners to find us. And of course, thank you so much for listening.